Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Sports Virus Podcast, everybody. I'm Joe Castellano. Well, today's guest is somebody that I met in the 1980s when he was the sports editor and I was a sports writer at the Daily Trojan newspaper at the University of Southern California. It's Paul Verkamen, who has over 30 years of experience as an on-camera reporter, producer, and news director, and he's now with CNN. He first joined CNN in 1991, and he is still based in the network's Los Angeles bureau. So 25 years total for Paul Verkamen. He left and came back with CNN. He's reported and produced high-profile breaking news stories in Southern California and around the country. He's also worked on the Super Bowl, the Stanley Cup, big stories, big events, the World Series. And back in 2016, he covered the final game for Kobe Bryant. There's just a hail of yellow confetti came down with purple little circles and the number 24 on it. The fans all game long were chanting Kobe, Kobe. They were also screaming MVP after the game, Kobe Bryant. And they got just what they asked for. Kobe Bryant with an absolute finish that would probably get you thrown out of any Hollywood mogul's office. If you walked in and you said, I've got this uh, this aging superstar, and he's going to score 60 points in his final game. They probably would say, get out of here. This is just preposterous. But it happened, and I think people were in utter disbelief as shot after shot began to rain in late in the game. That's Paul Verkamen in 2016 covering Kobe Bryant's final game in the NBA. Today, January the 6th, here's a conversation I had with Paul. Well, Paul, thanks so much for joining me here on the Sports Virus Podcast. Uh, the first time I think that I'm venturing out and not getting somebody who covers sports full-time, but you have covered plenty of sports, including the clip that we heard there when you covered the final game of the career of Kobe Bryant, which is really, really cool. So uh, thanks again for joining me here, and uh, I look forward to talking some sports with you. That sounds terrific, yes. A lot of time sports and general news mix, as you well know, and uh, we are indeed uh, an American society that just loves its sport, so I think it just can't be ignored. It's great for me to get out and go back to my roots, which were slash are in sports. Yeah, and we'll get back to the roots uh, a little bit later on, but talking about that Kobe moment, uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Was that one of the top events that you covered? Because uh, in Los Angeles, that was a really big deal. It was uh, phenomenal, and yes, it was huge. I mean, just imagine if anybody, a professional athlete, went out with a bang like that. I mean, Kobe meant so much to the city to begin with, and it wasn't like he scored 20 points or 30 or 40 or 50. He scored 60 points. And so to be in that energized arena, and watch all of that unfold was just tremendous. And then, of course, there was the post-game press conference after, and uh, it was just a great pleasure to even fire off a question to Kobe. Yeah, I know you were asking him about you know the fans wanting him to shoot, and you know a lot of times uh, you would think that you know teammates or even fans wouldn't want you to shoot too much; they want you to be a team player. But in that game, they wanted him to score as much as possible. 
Yeah, so that was part of his, I thought, very witty and funny answer. He said usually people were criticizing him for shooting too much, and in this case they were looking at him and they were telling him, Kobe, just keep putting it up. And you could see this when you're inside the arena, because obviously you don't have to watch the television monitors, but there's a timeout or so, and it was clear that they were pushing Kobe to take as many shots as he could and just continue to rack up the points. You know how much he was revered uh, going by the, you know, the fan reaction for that game, and then with his tragic death as well, which you covered too, right? I did. Uh, after we heard about this, I skipped over to Staples as quickly as I could, knowing that there would be a, a huge outpouring of just love for Kobe. And, I mean, within an hour, Joe, it seemed like fans were coming from all over Southern California and eventually California itself. And bringing whatever memento, candle, Lower Marion, Philadelphia high school jerseys, flowers, basketballs, beads, and people were gathering around uh, these images of Kobe, uh, these these floral arrangements, the candles, and just openly weeping. And I remember just uh, walking into that, and El Machete himself was there, Danny Trejo, and interviewing him. And all of this is unfolding live, uh, and it was just something that uh, really hit me in the gut because I'd watched Kobe all these years, and we were all, of course, stunned. I mean, you're a reporter in that moment, but you can't separate your own experiences with Kobe Bryant from what you're seeing and, and feeling at that time. No doubt about that. Uh, speaking of sporting events, uh, you've covered some of the biggest ones, like the World Series with the Dodgers being in there a couple of years in a row recently, and the Super Bowl, and you know, the Super Bowl on tap for SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles this year. Uh, what's that event going to be like as far as uh, your projection of it? Uh, it is going to be so energized, and I don't know uh, who out there has seen images of SoFi on television, but it is a unique venue with this massive elliptical scoreboard outside so far. There's all these sort of California desert terrain here or more of a creek-like setting there. There's the pond. So it's this combination of high-tech and California cool. By the way, it has no walls. Uh, it has a roof, but they kept it open, and they regulate that by things like these doors that can open and close. We'll call them doors. So the breeze can go through so far while you're there, and I think it's going to play really well on TV, not only for that event, but imagine this for us Californians. We're going to get the national championship in college football at SoFi next year. It's likely that there's going to be some World Cup uh, matches played at SoFi in 2026, and SoFi should be, I hear it will be, part of the Olympic Games in 2028. So it's going to be a, a centerpiece for all of California. Yeah, that's really going to be cool. Uh, you know, you've interviewed so many different people as far as in the news world and in the sports world. And when you think about interviewing big-time athletes, uh, that's not always the easiest thing or maybe the most enjoyable. Uh, you have also interviewed the women's soccer team. And you, uh, you know, have had those experiences where you see, you know, maybe they're not getting as much publicity or limelight as uh, those big-time major league athletes. Uh, what's the comparison? Well, I'll tell you one thing that helps me is coming from a general assignment view of anything, quite often I'm asking asking big picture, maybe even business or other stories. And sometimes when somebody is going over every nuance of a game, you can tell or match 
that the athlete is getting frustrated. So I'll go back to all Giants' favorite nemesis, uh, one of their favorite nemesis, that would be Tommy Lasorda. Yes. <laughs> I was doing a piece on the business of Major League Baseball, and I think Tommy really appreciated that. I was not, again, going through game day stuff. This was relaxed at spring training. And he went into the most unbelievable detail about the game of baseball, contrasting it with movies. Who wouldn't want to sit and watch a three-hour game? It's entertaining. It's great. It was phenomenal. I mean, he had a lot of fantastic ideas. And, again, there wasn't any really, you know, game analysis. <laughs> As only as he can do, he points that crooked index finger at me after and goes, you got yourself a hell of an interview there, pal. <laughs> and then I would see him years later at various other events and whatnot. And another classic Tommy is after that, he came into the CNN Bureau. And, of course, this is not an entertainment show. And we had one, but, but in this particular instance, I forgot what he was talking about or whose guest he was. It was unrelated to me, but he looked at me you know, with recognition. He said, hey, where's the spread? <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> like, Spread? Sure, it's in between our computers and at the assignment desk, uh, between the scanners. Yeah, these guys are really spoiled by getting food like that. Uh, you've interviewed John Madden, who recently passed away. Uh, what was that interview like? Just pure fun. I mean, I was doing a story on, uh, basically, it was the training camps and, and everybody getting ready for the season, and I wanted to ask him about this notion of players being told something none of them want to hear, and that is, go get your playbook and see the coach. And so Madden was just like cracking himself up. He said they had a guy they called the Turk, and that person would be the one who would tell somebody to go get their playbook and see the coach, and then they're going to be cut. And for him, what got him laughing so hard is he said there were at times guys who knew they were on the fringe of getting cut, and they would hide from the Turk. Like, what is that going to do? You know, at the upper management level, they've already made the decision that they're not going to keep this player any longer. So, I don't know. That John Madden was obviously an icon and, and a great interview. I mean, not just okay. Obviously, off the charts in his ability on my unofficial articulate meter to tell a story. <laughs> well, so there are the fun interviews like that, or like you mentioned, Tommy Lasorda could be fun to, to be around. But then when you get an assignment like trying to uh, cover the Donald Sterling story, the former owner of the Clippers. That had to be challenging. Absolutely. I remember, uh, you know, at one point, too, Donald uh, Sterling had gone to a mass at a predominantly African-American church in South Los Angeles, and everybody kind of around him and, and circling around him was okay with me trying to interview him. But this was one of those things where he didn't agree to the interview. You know, I walk up with my camera. And he just basically puts his hand in front of the lens and says, no, thank you. And then trying to figure out other parts of the Donald Sterling story, you might remember there was a lot going on at the time with Donald Sterling and a young woman. And I remember, I remember going into her lawyer's office to try to get clarity on just what their relationship was. Apparently he had bought her a car and whatnot. And we needed to get this stuff vetted. I mean, we're very thorough in making sure that We've checked our sources, and I remember I haven't had him since, but for some reason in this guy's office, and he wanted to throw me out for a lawyer, I had back spasms. <laughs> and the next <laughs> thing you know, I have to sit down, and he starts telling me more and more and more about their relationship. It was, it was fascinating, and it was, a, 
it was an odd moment where I was actually glad to be in slight pain. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe you have to have uh, back spasms more often to get more information. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. <laughs> oh, how about the, the guest who's intimidating? You, you know, you in the past have interviewed somebody like uh, Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, you stand next to a guy like that and, and you're firing off some questions. It's got to be difficult sometimes to, uh, you know, do that knowing how big that guy is. You don't want to ask the wrong question. No, you absolutely don't want to ask anybody the wrong question. But, you know, that's just part of the game. I mean, we we know going in many times, especially Shaquille certainly was not, but, you know, somebody's accused of something like Sterling, um, that you're probably going to get a very, very firm or, or stern rebuke. And, and you develop a thick skin for it after a while. I mean, the, you know, earlier in your career, it, it, when someone snubs you or uh, gives you a bad time, now, of course, they, they call us fake news on the alt-right and on the alt-left were narcs. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that comes with the territory. Um, Shaq, fortunately, it was just, it was more of an uh, entertainment-type story. I just remember he was sitting down, and there was a, a mini-hoop right next to him. And I pick up the ball, and I just sort of was goofing around with it. And let's say that the, the hoop was five feet tall. I go to lay the ball up, and Shaq slaps the ball blocks the shot, laughs, you know, grins at me, says, no, 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 not in my house, in so many words. Um, <laughs> he was he was a delight. You know, a lot of these people who are smart enough to showcase themselves and reach success in other areas, and of course he's a savvy businessman, they're pretty well-versed at being interviewed on camera and really don't give you, uh, you know, that much of a bad time. I'm sometimes surprised by people and what they will tell me on camera, uh, it can be rather amazing. <laughs> so you've had two different stints at CNN, and they've lasted a total of 25 years, if I have that right. Uh, tell us a little bit about just getting into broadcasting. What prompted you to get into it? And uh, those stints at CNN, because uh, you're there for a while, then you're away for a few years, and then you come back. That must have been interesting. Uh, it was fascinating. Uh, we'll start at the beginning. Uh I really got inspired to get into broadcasting by Vin Scully. Uh, I came from an all-immigrant Belgian family. My parents were in the restaurant, hotel, bar business, as a lot of these people are, from that part of the world, and they would work at night. So in the summers, and of course the late spring, and, and a little bit of the early fall, Vin Scully was like our de facto babysitter. You know, we were, we were told, all right, you guys, get yourselves to bed, we'll be home later. And I just started listening to him, and I was kind of captivated by that and journalism. So uh, I met you at USC, obviously, we're on the Daily Trojan together. And I was a print journalism major, but I, I made the, the transition to broadcasting. As far as CNN goes, it's hard for me to believe it's 25 years, but uh, rewarding. You know, I, I, love, I love the fact that um, I think for the most part, you know, CNN is ever-changing it's not the same job. I probably have some form of adult ADD. I think a lot of us journalists do. <laughs> I just can't stomach doing the same thing every day. I would not want to have a coffee break scheduled at 11 o'clock or lunch, whatever the case may be. I, I must be somewhat of an adrenaline junkie, but it's just curiosity. So I've enjoyed all of that. And then, as you said, I mean, it, it's not anything that would be embarrassing to anybody in our silly business of broadcast journalism broadcasting period people get laid off and somehow after surviving something like seven straight layoffs 
when AOL bought Time Warner, I got laid off and I went back to Santa Barbara where I wound up in almost a Ron Burgundy way, being the 5 p.m. anchor and the news director. And uh, that was interesting, being a manager as well. Uh, if you ever want some comic relief, broadcast journalism resume tapes, especially, let's say, from the 90s or the, in the 2000s, have high entertainment value. You will see some wonderful things, including one tape that came in from someone who said, Yes, go ahead and critique my tape. I won't apply for this job, but don't look at my team. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I oh, do yeah. that. <laughs> and regional accents and bad sideburns. Another guy had a haircut that looked just like the villain in No Country for Old Men. And, uh, you know, you try to nicely tell them, maybe you need to change your look up a little bit. And he did, and he landed a better job. So, I just didn't hire him. So did you send all these to to uh, Will Ferrell so that he knew how to play his role? Is that what it was? Um, that is really <laughs> funny. I probably should have. And, and, of course, Will Ferrell, he captured that that moment uh, like in time very well. You might have heard that Will Ferrell used to see a guy named Harold Green when he was growing up in San Diego. And I have seen some Harold Green outtakes, and I – where did these trampoline sort of, you know, all colors of the rainbow suits come from? You know, the burgundy and the and the very light Miami Vice aqua and all kinds of other psychedelic browns. It was really something. <laughs> so sports and national news seem to intersect quite a bit, and that's where you come into play. And, and I'm sure that you, you know, kind of enjoy it because you've had a little bit of a sports background, as you were saying, uh, you know, overseeing the sports department there in Santa Barbara as well. Uh, tell us about recently, because I know Dodger Stadium has been the site for the COVID test, the biggest site that uh, has been around, I think, for that in, in the country, and the biggest vaccine site, and you've had uh, to do reports out there at Dodger Stadium. Exactly, Joe. I mean, just as you stated, and this happened throughout the country with, with sports venues being extremely important both the COVID testing and getting the vaccination. So it started with Dodger Stadium becoming the largest testing site in the country, sometimes 12,000 people a day. I mean, you know, thousands and thousands of people a day snaking through the parking lot there getting the test. And then it became this massive vaccine site. It also became an election site. So did Staples, by the way, now Crypto Arena. It's going to be hard for me to adjust to that. <laughs> and I remember one day being outside Dodger Stadium and doing a story on the texting, uh, testing slash vaccinations and then talking about how Major League Baseball was going to reopen. So I actually did a live shot outside on the COVID issues and then inside the stadium while the Dodgers we're playing a, a practice game, a practice game that's a little bit legendary in Dodger lore because a bat boy, for lack of a better term, named Chico, threw out Mookie Bet in the practice game, and <laughs> the players just went absolutely nuts. But that was a that was a lot of fun, and it was a strange day to go from outside to inside and do multiple live shots. Yeah, and it, it's so strange that we had a whole season where. 
you didn't have any fans in the stadium. And now you have fans in the stadiums, but you wonder how long that's going to last the way things are now. But, I mean, in these times, I guess you must wake up not knowing what story is going to hit. I mean, maybe that's just the nature of what you do. But uh, especially lately, uh, you know, I remember I was watching you do – a story on the golf outings after golf opened up right after the pandemic. And, you know, you didn't know when that was going to happen. And then when I saw you, it was like, okay, now it's okay to play golf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you're right. I mean, the, especially with, with COVID, I mean, that story morphed every weekend, it seemed. And they were trying to get everybody back to normal in Los Angeles County. And, and finally, somebody, you know, grabbed somebody by the collar and said, look, I think in terms of recreation, They'll be outside and they'll be masked. You can let people return to the golf courses, and nobody should have any heartburn over it. So quite often, uh, that story also incorporated other parts and beaches being open, various mask rules, et cetera. But, you know, it's not lost on me that people are looking for these escapes, this chance to get outside. Surfing was also a big part of this story, too, as, as they had told people they couldn't go surfing in Southern California for a while. Anyway, uh, you make a great point. I mean, the news is ever-changing, and it goes back to my, my suggesting to you that perhaps I have adult ADD because I just need to have constant variety. <laughs> the journalism field, and I do want to go back to what you were talking about. We met at the uh, Daily Trojan, as I mentioned earlier uh, in the open, Uh, We met there, the USC school newspaper, and you were an assistant sports editor at the time. Now, this is back in the 80s, and journalism has changed quite a bit, especially with the advent of social media. How have you been able to adapt to it, and do you like the changes that have been made? What are are some of the better things that have happened as far as journalism, and, and what has gone maybe awry and, and won't be able to, you know, be retained uh, as far as the better parts of journalism? Well, I love the changes. I mean, our job is easier. If anybody out there, think about having to sit there and, you know, bang out your copy. Um, fortunately, we, we were that first sort of wave that started using computers, but those guys that used to sit there and girls, you know, pecking away on their typewriter, how absolutely difficult and annoying. And when I was at a small market station, we did use typewriters. I mean, that, that's a huge change. Also, something that you might have even noticed in your own backyards, this notion of the branded news van rolling up, you know, with the logo on the side, and then that mast going up in the air and hitting a transmitter on a peak, that changed dramatically in the last 10 years, and that's because of what we call a live view. That's that backpack that the photographers have, or the producer or reporter can put it over their shoulder as well. And that allows you to go live from almost everywhere and be extremely mobile. Yeah. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't need to sit there and have the truck with you. And you can do plenty of walk and talk and show and tell. That has been a great, great development. It's advantageous for us. And sometimes when you're trying to catch somebody off guard, it's nice to not have the truck in the parking lot setting up a giant flare and telling them, you better watch out because the news is here and they want to talk to you. So that's been a big improvement. Um, in terms of something that uh, you know might have changed for the worse, I don't really see anything technologically that goes that route. But I, you know, I don't like uh, when I think people are conflating sort of their opinion or not reporting something accurately 
and they may not necessarily be with a mainstream outlet or whatever the case may be. I just think we all have to be very, very careful about making rock-solid sure that whatever we're, we're reporting is on uh, firm footing. One thing that hasn't changed, though, for you up-and-coming journalists, tenacity is really what, what allows people to survive. And let's just say over the course of a year, I'll have 20 people express to me that they want to become a reporter, especially for television. And two people actually do something about it and work on their craft and go out and put together a resume tape and get up to speed with what's needed to become a reporter. I know a couple instances where someone sort of lacked in their college experience the reporting uh, skills, but joined their college paper maybe late in the game and got that down. Anyway, the point about tenacity is our business, as you know, Joe, someone will call in sick or someone else will be having boyfriend or girlfriend problems, and this will be going on, and then someone will be on vacation, and that news director, that managing editor, that city editor is going to tap you, that person on the shoulder, and say, all right, you're on, you know, you're subbing for this sportscast, you're, you're writing this story, you're covering this event, and just be ready. And if you, if you don't quit, if you can hang in there, you'll be all right. But one thing, I mean, this does teach you to have a pretty thick skin. Yeah, and it sound, that sounds like a lesson that you would have given as an adjunct uh, journalism professor at USC, which you uh, filled that role. Uh, so I, I would imagine that you preach that quite a bit. Oh, yes, all the time. I mean, I just, I just told, you know, the, the people in my class, I mean, I, I gave an assignment in a reporting class I had once, and I wanted them to be passionate about their assignment. And I was explaining to them, you know, you need to be interested and invested in what you're doing a story on, and whoever's reading or viewing it will do it. And, and I can remember off the top of my head, one person did an unbelievable piece on how to get fake ideas and how prevalent it was. <laughs> I mean, this could have been, you know, a, a led the local news. He went down to this really dicey part of L.A. where they were making him. Someone else did a story on bouncers leaning hard on students, among others, to pay them kickbacks <laughs> to get into places. Someone else did a story on McMansionization. That's where you take, you know, a very modest neighborhood and throw up some two-story monstrosity on a postage stamp lot, you get the idea. Of, and I, I just was really glad to see these students embrace that and really do stories that, that they cared about and that had an impact. And what I say to a lot of young journalists is, what have you pitched? What, what ideas have you had? Because don't get mad at me for going out and covering the solar eclipse in Oregon when I <laughs> you know, lobbied and told them I knew something about it when you didn't come up with that idea. But as I go back to those three students, those examples I gave, those were all ideas hatched by them. And all of them, I think, would have been strong stories for local news. Well, that's interesting because I remember I had a professor at USC teaching a broadcasting class. I think his name was Mike Daniels. And he took us out to uh, Catalina Island and said, okay, just do a story. Find a story. You're going to be here for a few hours. Just find one. And we had to do it. And it was fun. And it was, you know, and that just kind of shows you that, hey, it's not always going to be clear cut that there's some big story that you're going to be doing that day. I've had that happen on the professional level. I can remember in local news, my news director, King Harris, brilliant guy, knew how to allow people 
to play to their strengths, he sent me to the Paso Robles Mid-State Fair, and he said, you know, just go up there, do a fair opening piece, but then find another story. And, and sure enough, this white bull called the Canina Bull of about 6'2", and the crest of his back was as tall as I am. Just this bull was massive, and we did a whole story on what a novelty item this bull was, and he was a... He was something that just made people stop and gawk at. Turns out Sam Donaldson happened to be in town, if you'll recall, Sam Donaldson from ABC, and he had seen the story. We got a got into a healthy debate because he said he was a, from a ranch in New Mexico about this bull and all sorts of uh, little twists and turns that I can't get into on a, a podcast like this. <laughs> but what do you uh, say to people who uh, you know have that notion of, quote-unquote, fake news and, and how that's affecting uh, journalists these days, whether you're with a mainstream outlet like you are with CNN or if you're just you know with a small website. The, the best journalists have integrity, and they're trying to do the best they can, but there's that uh, bad rap out there right now about you know people not believing everything that they're being told. Well, you, I mean, you certainly can't influence anybody's political opinions and a a lot of a lot of these interpretations of what's fake and what's not are really based on someone's preconceived notion in my opinion all you can do as a reporter is just to be as truthful and honest and direct as you can And, and for me since i live in a general assignment world i would turn it around and say what's fake about that kobe bryant piece that you were highlighting what in there was not true what you know? What's fake about me saying that uh, twelve thousand people are getting a, a COVID test at Dodgers Stadium? And I mean that just goes on and on and on. You know, with every story I do. I mean, my approach is I am I'm just a conduit for people who are providing the information to get the word out. You know, example during the pandemic, we've seen these massive food shortages, and I'm in line in front of the Unitarian Church in Koreatown, and a thousand people are, are walking up. That's the way they distribute the food, getting their food box. I, I don't know whatever could be conceived or perceived about being fake about that. I mean, they're that desperate that they're welcoming a chance to grab a little extra food for their families so they can feed them. Exactly. Well, hopefully uh, we're going to be headed in the right direction as far as journalism. You know, you go back to when we first met, and uh, it's amazing the staff that USC had on that Daily Trojan staff. You know, yourself, Mark Gill, who's become a big movie producer. I think he, at one point he was the president of Miramax. Uh, he was the he was the sports editor there at the Daily Trojan. And then others like my friend Scott Howard Cooper, who's been an NBA writer, John Suhu, who was a photographer for the Dodgers for years. Uh, that, that was an amazing staff that you and I were a part of. Yeah, it was pretty mind-blowing. Uh, Hans Tesslar is the assistant LA Times uh, sports editor. Scott Howard Cooper, by the way, for the Bay Area sports fans, he just finished the biography of Steve Kerr. And also, you're talking about photographers of John Su, who, who's, who's just brilliant, but Randy Johnson also used to jump in and pinch it and shoot photos for us. And Randy Johnson as in the picture for the Mariners. And being That's amazing, dead. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Go to a press conference, and there's a derogatory term that uh, people use for when it gets to be very, very uh, crowded, cluster blank, and all sorts of other terms. And Randy had the ability 
to just stand there and, you know, pick up his camera and shoot right over people, I guess. Uh, yeah, that was a, that was a very, very interesting group of people. Kelly Carter was also uh, on that staff. And I think, I believe among other things, uh, Kelly wrote, a Serena Williams biography. <laughs> wow. Mark Gill, by the way, I was, I was on a plane recently and a movie pops up called unhinged and it says the producer is Mark Hill. So I watched it, and man, I mean that that was a, that was a crazy movie. And I was like, "What? What was Mark Gill thinking when he made that film?" All right, Joe, you're driving toward a pretty funny story. I don't think Mark would object to this, but once <laughs> upon a time, Mark Mark wrote a scathing article about USC's male uh, cheerleaders. And I'm sorry that I can't remember. <laughs> Yell leaders would be the name, right? And I knew I knew two of them, and I remember walking through the sports arena, and they were they had surrounded Mark, and they were upset that he had written such a terrible story about them. He thought they should have been banished, and uh, <laughs> I, I basically broke up a fight. Oh, so, come on, you guys, let's everybody relax here. I said, Mark, you owe me. Well, I had a quirky story idea, and that is, if you've never noticed this. Right about this time of year, January and February, the movie studios have movies that are sh- sitting on their shelves, and some of these movies are downright awful. And even the studios know they're awful. And for some reason, they're collecting interest. They don't want to put the marketing money into it. So they dump them into January and February, also uh, after summer and September, knowing full well they may not make a big you know, mint at the box office, but let's just get this off our hands. And I said, hey, Mark, Remember you said you kind of owed me one? I said, can, can I interview you for this story? And sure enough, I remember, this is going way back, but there were some terrible movies. One was called Night Flyer. <laughs> uh, another was called Phantoms. A lot of times they're horror movies, by the way, in this dumping period. Mercury Rising. And Mark <laughs> gave me the funniest quote soundbite. He said, yeah, for some of us studio execs, it's been so bad. We've been teasing each other. And I think sometimes we'll even break into... Mine's worse than yours. <laughs> it was a hilarious admission that this goes on in the movie business. So, I don't know, for all of you out there, play a game in your head and see if you can come up with a February or January where there was an unusual amount of these terrible movies that got dumped into theaters. And be wary of anything, by the way, that comes out in January and February. It might be a horror film. <laughs> and by the way, Unhinged, that was uh, Russell Crowe, who was just a maniac in that movie. So if I ever see Mark Gill again, i got to talk to him about that. So, <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for the time. Uh, this has been great uh, talking about the old days and, and your career. You've had a great career. Uh, keep up the great work and uh, look forward to seeing you again on CNN soon, especially with some of those sports stories. You bet, Joe, and uh, we'll all have to get together one of these days and uh, maybe take in some college sports or something. That's Paul Verkamen from CNN. Thanks a lot for listening. Join us again next week on the sportsvirus.com and the Believe Podcast Network. For now, I'm Joe Castellano. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.